Well, um, I'm glad to, that you're all here this morning. Uh, before we begin today's message, uh, let me remind you of uh, where we are in the narrative um, as we continue in the Gospel of John. It's the night of Passover, and uh, Jesus and his disciples are eating the Passover meal uh, together. Jesus had earlier washed his disciples' feet, including Judas, and subsequently explained the significance of that humbling display of self-sacrificial love. Now, on the one hand, it certainly was an attitude to adopt and apply in our relationships towards our brothers and sisters, and we've taken some time to uh, talk about that in the last couple of weeks. But at the, at the same time, as we've also uh, tried to stress, uh, it was also a vivid foreshadowing of the cross event itself. And just as Christ humbled himself in order to wash his disciples' feet, he would also humble himself by dying on the cross for those same disciples' sins and by extension ours as well. Judas would play an instrumental role uh, in Jesus uh, going to the cross. And, uh, you know, today's message uh, is not a happy one, as you think about it. Look at the title, The Betrayal. It's not a happy message, but uh, because it focuses on one of the most infamous traitors uh, who ever lived, the one who betrayed Jesus, Judas Iscariot. And his story is certainly a tragic one. But it is also one that I think we can learn from as well. Let me take a moment to read the text here this morning, and then we will pray and have our time together in the Word. John 13, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining a table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, open the word here this morning, we pray that you would minister to our hearts, that you would dig deep into our souls and help us to see what our Lord and Savior went through on the night before he was, in which he was betrayed. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, uh, for those that uh, don't know you here this morning, that they would um, be able to see um, the glory of our Lord and they would bow the knee to you. For those of us who know you, Lord, we pray that it will deepen our appreciation for redemption 
and for the life you, your son lived and how he gave up that perfect life to you on the cross to pay for our sins, to absorb your wrath in himself. So Father, use this time. Bless it, Lord, as we uh, go through the text in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning, we are going to, if I can get this to work here. Did I not turn it on? Okay. All right. thought I did. Okay. All right. I think it's going to work now. All right. Here we go. So we got basically three parts to the outline here. The prediction in verses 21 to 25. The fulfillment uh, in verses 26 to 30. And uh, third, uh, the application. So with that said, let's, uh, let's hit the ground running there in, uh, in verses uh, 21 to 22. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he, has, uh, whom he spoke. Now, much has already been said about Judas in this chapter, especially in the last several verses. We were told uh, that the devil had inspired Judas to betray Jesus back in verse 2, and uh, Jesus alerted his disciples to the fact that not all of you are clean in verse 11, and most recently, that the betrayal would be a fulfillment of Psalm 41, 9. You remember that? He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Well, after saying these things, Jesus now takes the time to focus more intently on the betrayer, making it crystal clear that it was someone in that very room, one of his inner circle twelve. Now, this was not easy for Jesus to talk about, as you see in the text here. He was troubled in spirit as he did so, as he talked about this. This is a word that means, uh, you know, to be troubled, to be frightened, to be terrified. And so this portrays Jesus' emotional state as being greatly disturbed, greatly distraught that one of his close friends would betray him. Look, Jesus was God come in the flesh, no question about it. But he was also a man with very human emotions, and so we shouldn't be shocked to see that the same things that trouble us also affected him very deeply. You know, the same apostle who takes such great pains to emphasize from the very first verse of this gospel, Christ's deity doesn't hesitate to describe the reality of his human feelings. And we shouldn't downplay them either when we think about the suffering that he went through. We, sometimes we read the Gospels in, in a way that are not intended. Like, you know, well, he's God come in the flesh, and so anything that he suffers in his humanity is just kind of God play-acting, Jesus play-acting, that he's experiencing these things. But we know he's not really suffering. We know he's not really troubled. We know he's not really, you know, hungry or thirsty or tired or any of these things. And that would be a huge mistake. He was God come in the flesh, but he, but he was in the flesh. He was a human being with very human emotions. It also gives us insight here, that having a troubled spirit isn't sinful 
in and of itself either. You know, it certainly can degenerate into sin, a troubled spirit, uh, but we should never automatically jump to the conclusions that just because someone is troubled, that somehow sin is involved in that. What we should do, regardless of the cause, is uh, provide emotional support for those who are going through difficult times, right? Sometimes they just need a hug. They just need someone to, to be there to comfort them, especially in a case like this. So we see here that Jesus didn't just stoically go through the motions as you know, he was experiencing betrayal. Oh, you know, someone in this room is going to betray me. It's no big deal. I'm God come in the flesh. You know, he wasn't just going through the emotions as he did this. It's not easy to, you know, from a human standpoint, to experience the betrayal of a close friend, to experience the treachery of someone you cared for deeply to turn their back on you. You wonder why. You, you wonder if it's something you did or said. You, you think about the hurt words, you know, that, that, uh, that were said to you. You begin to wonder if your friendship was ever real. And you wonder what motivates someone to hate you so intensely, right? This is what we think about when we go through betrayal. But whatever the case, your mind can't rest. That emotional turmoil only intensifies when the betrayal takes place at a time that you need that friend the most. Well, Jesus was about to go to the cross, and this was the time that he needed his friends the most, and this is why the prospect of betrayal was so difficult for him. Christ was at his most vulnerable, and to know that one of his closest friends would betray him left him very distraught just as it would any one of us in this room you know we we may be under the impression that all of the disciples knew immediately who jesus was talking about you know one of you in this room is going to betray me must be judas right because we all see the pictures of judas right he's like you know in the background, right? You read the children's Bible to your kids, right? Someone's going to be, and the guy who's got the red face and, and everything is, oh, I guess it was that guy, huh? Um, but, you know, scripture is very clear that that's not what happened, right? That they didn't know who it was. The answer wasn't obvious, right? They were confused. They were bewildered. They were looking at each other, you know? What was it? John is it Peter you know um, they wanted to know who Jesus was talking about and both Matthew and Mark in their gospels tell us that each of them said to Jesus is it I this is the the scary thing about Judas from an external perspective he looked and acted just like the rest of the disciples you know there wasn't anything suspicious about his life that made him the obvious culprit. I mean, if anything, uh, Scripture would attest to just the opposite. In fact, when we get to verse 29, we are reminded that Judas was the one who was in charge of the disciples' money. Now think about that for a second. Who would you put in charge of the money? The, the most trusted or the least trusted, right? So the fact that he's in charge of the money tells you what the other disciples thought about him 
Well, you know, Judas, he must have realized at this point that the, the jig is up, right? He knows that Jesus knows and that he needs to get on with this plan. But he's confronted now with the choice. I can either go forward and do what it is that's in my heart, you know, to do to, to betray Jesus, or maybe this is the time to stop, to think about what the heck am I doing here and repent and ask Jesus for forgiveness. That was the choice in front of him, and we all know what choice he would make. Verses 23 to 25, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? For the first time in this gospel, and it's only taken me 15 years to get to this point, you know, I started this in 2007, so it's only taken 15 years to get to the disciple whom, you know, whom Jesus loved. We're introduced to him here for the very first time, and we'll see him several more times in this gospel before it's all done. And he usually appears with Peter. And we know from the end of the gospel that the identity of this person is the same one who wrote this gospel, the author of the gospel. And that's why from the earliest of time, this gospel has been ascribed to the Apostle John. Now, with that said, why does John identify himself in this anonymous way? There are at least a, a couple of reasons that we can discern uh, from the gospel itself. Let me just uh, um, suggest a few of them uh, to you. There's probably more, but here's just a couple. First is that uh, John probably wants to shift attention away from himself and onto the grace of Christ. So, you know, instead of pointing to himself, because as you look at the narrative, he is close to Jesus. He's an insider. So instead of pointing to himself as, as someone as, hey, Jesus is my bud, you know, I'm, I'm a close friend of him, you know, I'm, I'm really a privileged disciple. We'll see that, by the way, in this narrative. Um, and I would have in the inside track into all the kinds of insight that you're going to read about here. Um, he gives himself an identification instead that focuses on his indebtedness to Christ's grace. It's not about me, right? It's about Christ. This is similar to how we see John the Baptist in the opening uh, chapter of the same uh, gospel when he is questioned about his identity. And, you know, he answered the question by saying, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John didn't emphasize, hey, I'm John the Baptist, you know. I, I'm pretty famous around these parts. But he simply identified himself as the voice. He didn't draw attention to himself. I think that's what John is doing here as well. Secondly, by focusing attention to Christ and not to himself, John is providing the example for his readers, that obviously includes us, that the glory belongs to Christ alone. You know, John doesn't want to be the star of his own gospel. Jesus is the star, right? Thirdly, by keeping 
his identity concealed, John is allowed to be part of the narrative without distraction. Now, I I say that because when you read through this gospel, you see that there is a positive portrayal of the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, you know, some commentators have, have called John the ideal disciple. And so you can imagine how that could be interpreted as tooting your own horn, right? You, you read all these positive things. Well, John, you know, did this and John did that and everything is painted in a positive light. It's sort of like, man, this guy's pretty arrogant. Every time he appears, he writes a will of himself. But by saying, you know, taking himself out of it and just saying it's the disciple whom Jesus loved, he could write honestly about what actually happened, but without drawing attention to himself. So John avoids all of the charges like that about tooting his own horn by just remaining anonymous. We mentioned this in last week's message, but when, when eating a formal meal like the Passover, the participants would recline at the table. They would lean on, usually on their left side, their left arm. Their heads would be closer to those tables. Remember, those are the shorter tables like those Korean tables that we eat at, you know, when we go to people's houses. And they're, so their heads are closer to the table and their feet are pointing away from it. Now, I, I want you to picture this in your mind. Maybe I should have put this on the screen here so you could see it. But think of a three-sided U-shaped arrangement of pillows on the floor. Okay, so there's, you know, they, they call them couches, but they're not couches like the way we think of couches. They're really pillows. And they're in a U-shape. And in the, in the very middle of that U there are three seats. There's the, 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 um, the main guy, right, in the middle, and then the two guests of honors on either side. So the host gets the middle seat, right? The, now, this is what's interesting. The guest of honor, you would think, would sit to the right. It's not what it was. The guest of honor sat to the left. The second guest of honor sat to the right. And uh, understand, reclining at the table uh, in this day was not the norm. It was the exception that was reserved for special meals. The norm was to sit at the table just like you and I sit at the table when we eat our meals. But reclining at the table was a Hellenistic custom that was eventually adopted by the Jews. And by this time, it was customary at important banquets and feasts to recline at the table. So the fact that Jesus and the disciples are seen here reclining at the table provides evidence that this is a special occasion. And we've already talked about this in the last couple of weeks. We are eating here the Passover meal. Christ is going to die as the Passover lamb. With that said, there are some important details that John provides uh, in these verses. The first thing we're told is that John, the Apostle John, the writer of this gospel, was, was reclining at Jesus' side, which literally means that he was reclining in Jesus' bosom. Now, that sounds kind of weird, right? It sounds kind of strange. But let me kind of put this in perspective for you. John would have been sitting or reclining on Jesus' right side, okay? 
And so here's the thing. As he's reclining and Jesus is next to him, as he reclines back, hopefully I don't fall over here, as he reclines back, he reclines back into Jesus' bosom. His head is here, his chest is here, and they could talk very privately with each other um, and, and say these words that, are, that, that we read about here. So his head is literally, John's that is, is literally leaning and resting on Jesus' chest. Now, we're not told who held the, the, the place of highest honor, which would have been to Jesus' left here. Now, we'll, we'll proffer a guess when we get to verse 26, and I don't think it's that hard to, to, to guess who it is, uh, but we'll save it for when we get there. But because of John's close proximity to Jesus and the alarming content of Jesus' prediction, Peter signals non-verbally to John, asking him to ask Jesus what he's talking about. So he doesn't say anything here. He just kind of, you know, gives, you know, the, the, the non-verbal signal to John. And this little peek, by the way, into John and Peter's relationship shows the mutual trust and friendship that they had, which is probably why when you read John's gospel, John and Peter are often seen together. And I'm, maybe I'll do this in one of these subsequent messages, but uh, there is a comparison between John and Peter that, uh, that you see in this gospel that uh, when you see it side by side, it makes for a very interesting uh, read about, uh, about Christians and, and um, stages of maturity. But anyways, that's for another day. John complies, and with his head resting on Jesus' chest, you know, he, he probably whispers to Jesus, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Although the text doesn't explicitly state this, the implication is that only John heard these words, not everyone at the table. And that only makes sense as you read the, the narrative. Because Jesus probably, you know, John is whispering to, to Jesus, and Jesus is probably whispering back to John. Now, we've already discussed how that would be possible to, due to this close proximity to each other and how easily it would have been to carry on this private conversation. But in order to appreciate Jesus' actions here, it's necessary that we understand a little about the culture in that day. The host of a meal would often dip either a choice piece of bread or meat into a common bowl. So think of a bowl that's sitting there, you know, at the table that everyone could reach and would pull out, you know, after dipping it, the, the choicest, tastiest morsel, which would then be given to one of the guests as a show of favor, honor, and friendship, right? It's kind of like if you're on the barbecue and then, you, you, you know, you, you have one steak that came out the, you know, the best. It's like perfectly, you know, medium or medium rare, however you like it. And you want to, you know, give it to, you know, someone that you think, you know, should appreciate that the most. You give the tastiest piece. It's kind of similar. You're giving that to, the, to, to this uh, honor, uh, to the guest of your choice. So... To which of the honored guests does Jesus give the choice peace to? The answer is Judas. Now think of it. How could 
Jesus, so easily pass it to Judas in this U-shaped form when he's sitting there in the middle. Now, this is not absolutely certain, okay? It's not, it doesn't say it explicitly in the text, but the likelihood is, and most commentators agree with this, is that Judas was sitting where? To his left in the seat of honor. So he could have just easily dipped it and then just went like this and passed it to Judas. In the very beginning of this chapter, uh, we read something quite striking, right? That Jesus loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. As we said back then in in verse 1, a couple of weeks ago, Jesus had a special love for his elect, a love that would be expressed to its fullest extent, even though he knew that his disciples would forsake him within the next 24 hours. You know, even though Judas was part of the inner circle 12, he wasn't part of the elect. But that didn't prevent Jesus from showing unfettered love to Judas as well. This is demonstrated so clearly in this part of the narrative as Judas is not preemptively sitting as far away from Jesus as possible, or, you know, in the corner in a chair facing the wall or, or, or something like that. But very likely, he's sitting in the seat of honor and now given the choice piece of bread or meat, depending on what it was. And as you think about it, this is Christ's final appeal to Judas to repent. This is what uh, Carson in his commentary calls a final gesture of supreme love. Verse 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. So how did this final gesture of supreme love affect Judas? Probably not the way that you would think, right? It actually, it doesn't go, Oh man, what am I doing here, you know? Gosh, you've, you've only been wonderful to me. You took me in, un, under your wing. You, you gave me, uh, you, you know, the inside track as one of your 12, you know. Got an uncensored look at you throughout these last three years. What was in my heart was evil. You know, I repent. That's what you would think, right? But no, it pushed Judas. This act of kindness pushes Judas over the edge to full surrender to Satan. John pictures this very moment as the turning point for Judas. So instead of convicting Judas's heart of the sin, treachery, and betrayal that was stirring there and, and leading him to repentance, it hardened his heart even more towards Jesus. It seems as if Christ's kind gesture offended him and then provoked him to set his plan in motion. And almost as quickly as the choice piece of food entered into Judas, the devil did as well. Without equivocation, John is now informing his readers that Judas is demon-possessed, but possessed by the devil himself. Remember back in verse 2, John alerted the reader that the devil had already planted the suggestion into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. You remember that? Well, instead of rejecting that suggestion, 
Judas entertained the idea in his heart, and now we see the ultimate result. Satan knocked at the door of Judas's heart, and eventually Judas let him in, and Satan took full possession of Judas. Let me take a quick uh, detour uh, before we go back to the narrative for just a second. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, believers cannot be demon-possessed, but that doesn't mean there isn't a spiritual battle to fight. You know, Satan does attack believers today, uh, seeking to influence their minds much in the same way that he did to Judas. Um, You know, most of the time, Satan attacks us in that arena. It's not usually something physical or, you know, it it can be. But uh, in, in most of our cases, he's, he's doing what he did here, attacking the mind. James 4, 7 calls believers to submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You know, we can win the battle against Satan, but we can never win it in our own strength or with our own abilities. We can only successfully resist him, and notice the, the way that James puts it, You have to submit yourself to God first and then he will flee from us, right? That's the the, the correct way to think about it. You know, we would do well to heed uh, J.C. Ryle's uh, warning to the contrary here. This is my weekly J.C. Ryle uh, uh, quotation here. By the way, if you ask me uh, who is your favorite, you know, old writer, um, for me, it's not even close. Uh, J.C. Ryle of any of the older uh, theologians would be uh, my easy choice. If you've not read him, it's like you're reading someone who's writing today. Very, it's not like reading one of the Puritans where you, know, you read it and you go, oh my gosh, like Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is not my favorite to read. You read Jonathan Edwards. He's got a lot of great stuff to say, but it takes him 100 pages to say it and in very complicated form. Uh, uh, J.C. Ryle is not like that at all. He's one of the last Puritan uh, writers, but when you read him, uh, very easy to understand and very convicting. If you've never read Holiness, you ought to. It's one of the classics of the Christian faith. Anyways, that's my commercial for uh, J.C. Ryle, but here's what he said. He said, uh, once let a man begin tampering with the devil, and he never knows how far he may fall. Trifling with the first thoughts of sin making light of evil ideas when first offered to our hearts, allowing Satan to talk to us and flatter us and put bad notions into our hearts, all this may seem a small matter to many. It is precisely at this point that the road to ruin often begins. He that allows Satan to sow wicked thoughts will soon find within his heart a crop of wicked habits. Happy is he who really believes that there is a devil, and believing, watches and prays daily that he may be kept from his temptations. End quote. Jesus then tells Judas out loud in the hearing of his, all of his disciples, what you are going to do, do quickly. In other words, more quickly than you originally planned. In, in other words, what he's saying to, to Judas is, look, I, I already know your plans, and I'm not going to stop you. So get on with it, right? There's no reason to delay. You don't have to waste time. Just get on with the plan. And Jesus is showing that even in his most vulnerable state, 
He is in command of the situation and not a mere victim of circumstances that are beyond his control. Jesus still calls the shots and he gives Judas the orders even though he's in the middle of being betrayed. You remember what Jesus said back in chapter 10, verse 18? He said about his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus was always in control of the situation. You know, something we're thinking about here as it relates to Satan's possession of Judas and how he inspired and energized Judas to betray Jesus. He was actually unwittingly being the agent to bring about his own demise. I want you to think about this passage here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Look what, what the writer there says. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong, uh, to lifelong slavery. Did the devil know this redemptive truth that the Hebrews writer talks about did he know that his own demise would be brought about through jesus's death well presumably not or he probably wouldn't have worked so hard to get jesus to the cross now jesus would have gotten there anyway but i I think you get the point he didn't know all of this and he was doing what he most wanted to do but to the detriment of himself christ's incarnation and subsequent death was the means by which he deprived death of its power over man by removing both the cause of death, which was Satan, and the effect of death, which was fear. So Satan was eager to get Christ to the cross, thinking that he would be the victor. And instead, he was hastening his own undoing in the end. Verses 28 to 29, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Now you can imagine that the apostle John must have been shocked as he witnessed what just took place. In fact, you don't see him say anything in in response to all of this. But he now knows that Judas is the betrayer. But he, along with the rest of the disciples, didn't know why Jesus said what he said to Judas. Some of them interpreted Jesus' words very innocently, thinking that he was instructing Judas to buy what was needed for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which, uh, remember how your feasts and festivals work, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would have began that same night, right, and then it carries on for the next seven days uh, that follows. It's a celebration that follows the Passover meal. So, uh, you know, as the, as the treasurer, it wouldn't be unusual for Judas to buy what would be necessary for the feast. So a lot of them thought, oh, Jesus is just telling him, go out and buy groceries, right? Or whatever, whatever else we need. Or to be the one who facilitated giving charity 
to the poor. In fact, it was customary to give charity to the poor on Passover evening as beggars would gather at the temple as the gates of the temple would be left open from midnight on so that beggars, poor people could gather there and then people could bring their alms and charity to the poor. Well, we know both of these assumptions were both dead wrong as to why Jesus said what he, what he said to Judas. But I, I want to give you a couple of observations to make uh, before we leave these verses. First of all, we shouldn't take for granted that just because Jesus was the Son of God, he used miraculous means on a daily basis to provide for himself and his disciples. You might think that in your mind, but it would be totally untrue. You know, he didn't just conjure up food and clothing whenever they needed it. Hey, you need a new tunic? Okay, you know, you have it. Hey, anyone hungry? I'm going to order from the Father in just a minute, so we're going to get some uh, uh, DoorDash here in just a second, or, you know, Father Dash or whatever, right? <laughs> he didn't, he, he didn't uh, just do this, you know, just conjuring things up, you know, like I Dream a Genie or something. You know, younger people probably don't even know what I'm talking about there. But um, he bought and sold, Jesus bought and sold like everyone else and had to rely on the principles of stewardship in his day-to-day life, all the while trusting God to provide. You remember Matthew 6, 23 and 24, right? That the seek ye first the kingdom and all these things will be added. He, he lived like one of us, is my point. He's not living, you know, a, a supernatural plane up here where the rest of us have our feet on the ground. Secondly, part of that stewardship is seen in giving to the poor. You know, the fact that some of the disciples thought that Jesus was telling Judas to give to the poor, what does that tell us? It demonstrates that that was a regular practice of Jesus. That's why they thought that or assumed that. And remember, Jesus was far from being rich. He wasn't one of these word of faith preachers, you know, that you see on TV that's driving, you know, a stretch limo and, and, you know, has several personal planes. No, he had very little possessions and no place to call home. You remember what he said in Matthew 8.20? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Right? But take note. Jesus would be what we call on the lower class, right? Or, you know, uh, certainly not middle class. But uh, Jesus didn't use his lower economic status as an excuse not to care for the poor, and neither should we. All right, verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So how did Judas respond to Jesus' command? Well, even in his demon-possessed state, he had no choice but to obey Jesus. Jesus' hour had come to go to the cross, and Judas would unwittingly be playing out the predetermined role that God had ordained for him as Jesus' betrayer. I, I think it's worth mentioning that John provides what seems at first glance to be an unnecessary detail. And it was night. You know, of course it's night. 
They're eating the Passover meal, right? You don't need to add that detail uh, that it was night. So why tell the reader what is so obviously self-evident? Well, I think what's going on here is this is very likely a theological statement that really cuts in two directions. First of all, so far as Judas was concerned, he was, he was swallowed up by intense darkness, spiritually speaking. There was not just night, there was dark. The point is there was darkness, spiritual darkness, and Judas was epitomizing that. In Matthew 8, verse 12, Jesus described hell as a place of outer darkness where weeping and gnashing of teeth is the eternal environment of the damned. You know, some of you may have wondered, somebody even asked me this after uh, a couple of weeks ago, have wondered whether Judas is in heaven or hell, whether he truly repented at the end of his life before he died. Some make a case that uh, we're going to see Judas in heaven one day. Some will even cite Matthew 27, uh, verses 4 to 5, when Judas confesses that he betrayed innocent blood. You remember this? And he threw back the, the silver into the temple and uh, subsequently hanged himself. And a lot of people pointed that and say, well, that was proof that Jesus was repentant, right? And that was the story of his repentance. I, I would simply point out that feeling remorse over something you've done, that isn't the same thing as biblical repentance. Real repentance starts with feeling remorse. That is certainly the starting place. Um, you feel remorse over your sin, but it leads to asking for, for forgiveness from God and then seeking reconciliation, not killing yourself. That's not the, the mark of genuine biblical repentance. Peter, in addressing his fellow apostles, uh, as you recall, concerning the need to replace Judas with either um, Barsabbas or Matthias as one of the twelve, he made this statement in Acts one twenty-five. He said this, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. It's a very important statement that Judas turned aside to go to his own place. This passage, by the way, puts the discussion to rest definitively. The expression that Peter uses here to his own place is a euphemism that the early church used to describe where a person ends up after he dies. So to say that Peter went to his own place in this context means that he went to a different place than where the other 11 apostles are going. He went to his own place, meaning eternal punishment in hell. He's called the son of destruction, which means the son of perdition, the son of damnation. In John chapter 17, 12, the son of hell. Also, if that weren't enough, Jesus said in Matthew 26, uh, verse 24, he said this, the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. And listen to these words. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is one of the most terrifying 
sobering verses in all of Scripture. Obviously, such a statement can never be said in reference to a person that's going to heaven. To betray the Messiah is such a damnable offense, Jesus can say that it would have been better for Judas to have never lived than to have to face punishment, you know, such, a, such punishment for such a grievous sin. You know, not everyone's punishment in hell is the same, and there is probably no one suffering a greater damnation in hell than Judas. Judas, who was in charge of the money for the disciples, lost his soul forever because he loved that money more than Jesus. And many people today are following him down that same path. So it was darkness for Judas in one sense, but darkness or night for Jesus in another. Just after Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, Jesus made this proclamation to the Jewish leaders and the temple officers. He said this, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Probably better translated, the authority of darkness. That's in Luke 22, verse 53. This refers to the rule or domain of evil, which is characterized by darkness. So make no mistake about it. Jesus was facing the full authority of darkness as he headed to the cross. Does this mean that evil has independent authority from God? No, not at all. Permissively, God allows evil to run its course, but it's always under the sovereign hand of God. Notice what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, look, look at the, what we have in that one passage. Was it God's plan for Jesus to be crucified according to Acts uh, 2.23? Yes, without question. Did evil men crucify Jesus? Absolutely. Did God do what he most wanted to do? Yes, he did. Did these evil men do what they most wanted to do uncoerced? Absolutely. This is known as compatibilism, that God can be completely sovereign over a situation while at the same time, man has freedom to choose what he most wants to do. Both are true and both are compatible with each other and we see that ever clearer in, in the, the cross event of Christ. That leads me to a final thought as we get to the application section here. Are you a closet Judas? You might be sitting here this morning as a closet Judas and none of us would be the wiser. You might be a member of this church serving faithfully, talking a good game while in, real, in reality you are living a double life. No one else knows what's going on in your life behind the scenes. Not even your closest friends have a clue of the secret life that you're living. But you've been doing it for so long that it's what you're used to. It's just normal to you. you you're in a scary place 
if this describes you. And just like Judas, it will not end well. Here's something to consider from the very same. Oop. I guess it's something to consider, but I didn't consider it in the slides here. If you turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 3, turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 3, let me give you something to think about from this same author. First John 3, uh, starting in verse 7. The Apostle John writes, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. How do you know if you are a closet Judas? Well, you know, regardless of what you look like on the outside, the proof is the quality of your life. You can, be, you can pretend to be righteous uh, just like Judas, but are you really righteous? You could uh, give a Christian performance. It's really not that hard to do. Give a Christian performance when you're around church people but you could live like the devil when they're not around. Is your life characterized by a practice of sinning because that's what you crave and that's what you really are? Now, understand, John's not talking about striving after Christ, but in the midst of that striving, falling into sin. That's the Christian life. That's what every Christian, legitimate, born-again, saved Christian experience. That's not what he's talking about. This is talking about a life that is fully devoted to the practice of sin because he's a slave to sin and his father is the devil. That you represent yourself on the outside as one thing, but inside you are really totally different person. A secret agent life. Also, don't miss the important point in verse 10. A professing believer who doesn't love other believers isn't really born of God. You know, if you hate to be at church and to, you hate to be around other Christians, you ought to take a long, hard look in the mirror because the chances are you're not really a child of God. Those two just do not go together. And that's not me talking. That's what the scripture says. That's what the passage is telling us. If this does describe you, the question is, why continue to live like this? Why live this double, you know, double agent kind of life? Turn from this hypocritical way of life and beg God to forgive you of your sins so that your heart doesn't become harder and harder in your insensitivity to sin. One of the things about plain church and being in, the, you know, in a church like this where you hear truth on a regular basis 
is just like Judas, who heard the truth, right, without error, unfettered, for three years of of his life, is when you resist it, you hear it, and you just suppress it and don't care about it, your heart just becomes progressively harder and harder and harder. And the voice softer and softer and softer to the point that you start to detest it. Eventually, the truth will come out. Um, Don't get to that point. Don't let that be you in your story. Ask Jesus to wash you clean from your sins and to change you from the inside out, and he will if you put all of your faith in what he did for you on the cross. And that would be my exhortation to those of you who don't know the Lord this morning or have been pretending to know the Lord this morning. We'll pick this up here next week as we get to that wonderful passage of the new commandment uh, there and talk about what is the new commandment as we speak in our time next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this look, this glimpse into the tragic life of Judas. Father, how sobering it is to talk about damnation and to talk about um, the hardening of, of hearts and giving ourselves over to the enemy. Lord, let that not be true of anyone here. We pray for those in our congregation that they would examine their hearts to see that they really know Jesus or not. And for those that don't, that they would come to know you by grace through faith in your son. Thank you for our our people. Thank you for our church. We pray for the rest of our day, even as we hear um, from the missionaries in our next hour, pray that that would give much uh, encouragement to our soul to hear about the gospel going forth throughout our world. We give you thanks for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.